Dear Brambling, it's your Uncle Luke here. I hope you're having a great day today. I hope you're taking care of yourself in some way. I know today it is a very sunshiny day. And I got a day off, and I'm very excited about that. Today on the podcast, however, I have my friend Richard. Richard is a student psychologist, and his area of expertise is relationships. And today we are going to be talking about relationships, more specifically, however, uh, friendships and mentor relationships, parent relationships. Yeah, it gets um, vulnerable. It gets kind of personal. And um, I'm very grateful for this conversation with him. For me, in this conversation, I do talk about my old childhood friends, and I find that it's very important for my story to talk about them candidly, and I do mention their names. Yeah, that's all I can really say. I, uh, I'm i really grateful for this conversation. Um, we had it live in person, and uh, yeah, Richard and I, we just talked for like almost three hours. It was such a great conversation. It bled into some archetypal language. It bled into emotions. And my word, it was just so good. And I just remember re-listening to this conversation, just sometimes forgetting to edit. <laughs> really, truly, I was just forgetting to edit and I was just listening and I was just enjoying personally. So I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you guys. It is going to be a two-parter because it is very long. Um, and uh, yeah, I do hope you enjoy. But yeah, other than that, um, I'm just gonna jump right into this conversation. And um, I hope you enjoy. I'll see you then. How's it going? Good. This is the second time we're recording this, but it is like probably like a half a year in between recordings. Yes, I am a procrastinator and I'm not very good with my hard drives and I, I don't know, what did I do? I like erased it somehow. I, I, I destroyed my hard drive. Your hard drive just being plugged in all the time going, I'm here, I'm not here, I'm here, I'm not here. That's exactly what gets, happened. Gets a little bit tired. Yes. Well, hello, Richard. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. Round two. Round two. Yes, but round one for everyone else. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So, yeah. So, how have you been? I've been good. Yeah. Um, should I maybe introduce myself? Yes, please. Okay, so my name is Richard. I know Luke because I went to his Starbucks and I was like, hey, a cute or a cute guy with uh, with uh, Pokemon on his shirt. I better talk to him. Um, and we've been friends ever since. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, so I am a grad student, uh, and I'm learning to become a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not yet a psychologist. Um, I am not. If you're watching this for legal reasons, I am not your psychologist. I am not Luke's psychologist. We're just talking, and I'm probably going to bring some fun psychology things into our conversation. But, uh, yeah. Counting on it. Yeah, but don't, don't, don't think I'm... And I'm also speaking as, like, 
not a psychologist right now. So okay. just take what I say with a grain of salt. Okay. Yeah. No, thank you for that. That's really important. Um, yeah. Yeah, so something I like to ask um, everyone before they begin, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, <laughs> yeah. but would you be down to tell a little bit about your story? Oh, my story. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was, we're going to get to the what's in your cup questions because I, I prepared <laughs> for that and made Luke something pretty gross. Um, uh, so my story, I, uh, so I grew up in, in a small town in BC um, and eventually moved out to the big city and did my university here. Um, I started in sciences and then realized I just really like talking to people um, and I was good. I actually remember the first semester of first year in university, everyone like does horrible on their first year or their first exams. Mm. So I remember I was just studying in the common room on our floor and literally everyone came in and like lay down on the chair and like wanted to talk to somebody. So I was like, hi, maybe a good psychologist in the future. And yeah. here, here I am now in my training. So yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. That's kind of the short and sweet story. A lot more, but I'm sure we'll get to that with the topic today. Yeah, of definitely. journeys in in some respect. Definitely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, like you mentioned, what is in your cup? <laughs> What's in our cup? What's so I I decided to bring something a little spicy, a little bit interesting. Um, I made Luca drink with rum and um, jalapeno kombucha. The jalapeno kombucha is quite nice. Yes. Not. With rum, <laughs> as we have found out. I mean, so, it's it's fine. It's a fine it's drink. drinkable. It is drinkable. It barely, but you know, well, like a little more than barely. Yeah. Like I'm actually reaching for it, being like, okay, another sip. It's another interesting. Sip. Yes, it's got like, you'd think that a, a that a jalapeno kombucha would have more going on, more <laughs> funkiness, but it's just very subtle kombucha and mint and. A little bit of spice at the end. Yeah. But that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So just a little bit fancy. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess t- today is a, is a little different than usual. And I think this one we're letting Richard kind of take the reins a little bit. Or maybe we're going to have like share the reins I a little think, bit. I think share the reins would be nice. Okay. Um, so originally our topic was um, security and, and trust. And trust. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, I, I really enjoyed talking about that. And I'm actually, my research that I do, uh, I do sexuality and relationship research, um, as well as I, uh, I, I'm learning to become a psychologist. So I form relationships, not those types of relationships, but like supportive relationships with my clients. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided like, it may just be good to talk about relationships in general. Cause yeah. like, I don't know. I feel like that, uh, my thoughts about it, I I know some theories by like Sullivan. He um, he created like the interpersonal psychological theory. One of the people, another per, uh, oh, I forget her name. Um, another psychologist created the another interpersonal theory, but I know his a bit more. So his was his idea was that in order to really create our personality, 
that really comes from the people around us and the interactions that we have with others. Mm. And so I thought it would be really interesting to talk about like important relationships, whether that be parental friendships, romantic relationships, yeah. like things of that nature wow. of our life. So yeah, I think that's a good topic. <laughs> Definitely. Lots to talk about with us. And a lot that like doesn't have to be psychologically focused because we can just talk about important relationships in our lives with people and how they affected us. So, so I guess maybe let's um, start off with the uh, the elephant in the room type of question. And how would you define a relationship? I think like there's many different ways that you can define it i think it's just like our interactions as human beings and like mm. we have many different interactions and like it really depends on what you're trying to define as a relationship are you trying to define a romantic relationship just like i i could say that you have a relationship with every customer that you had today yes um and like we have somehow have weird relationships with people we don't even talk to we just notice each other so I guess it, like if you want to get really granular it could just be like the interactions you have with every human in the world whether or not you see them or not but okay or you could really get to like is it something more meaningful what what would you say you would count as a relationship yeah well I think I think you're hitting the nail on the head with that I do also think however I would adding a few more swings of the hammer, if you will, um, with, uh, by saying, you know, with everyone in the world and yourself mm -hmm. and with activities and maybe even objects or, sure. you know, like there's like people, uh, can have like a really bad relationship with substances. Yeah. Okay. Right? I w and I was thinking more of like an interpersonal relationship, but I do agree that it can be something like one big thing in attachment research is like attachment relationships with God, which is really interesting. Um, yes. So like, yeah, I do think it can be like also more metaphysical. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. So that's, that's what I was thinking about. But uh, yeah, again, we don't really have much planned, but yeah i thought a good place to start would be like what what relationships i i guess i want to explore for both of us what relationships have really impacted our lives and like mm. kind of unpacking that together totally wow okay and i mean i guess we could start and maybe maybe i'll direct the first question like was there any child relationships that you had that were really important for you as a child because one thing with sullivan's uh, interpersonal theory he had a really big thing about how child relationships your relationships with your peers in childhood can be really helpful for you he actually lived up in a pretty rough household his mom i think was pretty absent his father was too mm. um and he was mainly raised by his grandmother who was from ireland did not speak english only spoke gaelic really so he could not communicate with her 
and the way she communicated with him was by leaving dead spiders around the house where he was not supposed to go. So as you can see, this is a pretty dramatic childhood for him. And um, he says that he feels that he would have not been... And he, he did not end up being a very healthy person, well-rounded. He was a bit of a weirdo. But he said his childhood relationships saved him, especially with one of his close friends. So, mm. childhood. Yeah. Um, the first thing that comes to mind for me was you know, growing up in New Westminster, just right on like um, our next door neighbors, there was uh, my friend Garrett that lived there, who was the same age as me. Mm-hmm. And from like four till eight, so it's like a significant four years mm-hmm. where we shared a lot of the same interests. Mm. We always wanted to hang out. Mm. It got to this point where him and his brother mm-hmm. uh, were having such a close relationship with me and my brother. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as much as close relationship with my brother because he's like seven, eight years older right, than right. Both, both of them. Um, but... Uh, the uh his parents and my parents decided to like cut a hole into the hedge oh, that wow. was dividing the two houses yeah and um they we would just uh go into each other's yards at at will yeah. and like we had this really big backyard where we had a tree house and a trampoline and just like space to run mm-hmm. and so oftentimes we'd be like coming home safe like from dance class for me mm-hmm. and they'd both be on the trampoline just jumping in our backyards yeah. and um i often found myself just like going over to their place knocking on the back door being like is garrett home can we yeah. play <laughs> um we would often be playing pokemon together we would be playing uh nintendo yeah he was always that guy where we would just like have these like wild imagination um trips and we'd like go with each other nice. to our imagination land mm-hmm. and um really just enjoy it and you know i think we had similar mannerisms in that way too i think we like picked off of each other as well mm-hmm. yeah it was like a really strong and lovely friendship back in childhood nice and then around um grade two when we were about eight years old they moved away to um, Winfield or Lake Country, Kelowna area. It's really interesting because, like, I remember the first day we met, we talked about, like, hung out together. We talked about this friend. And, yes. like, because, yeah, I have, I have family that's from Winfield. My grandma grew up there. So, right. yeah, yeah. Right. It, you know, it had a very significant role in my childhood for sure. He was, yeah. like, that friend that I clung to. And I think. You know, maybe unpacking it a little bit, I think it maybe created this attachment psychology theory or something in my <laughs> mind where I tend to latch on to maybe like one or two friends mm-hmm. in my adult life mm-hmm. and like really just nurture those relationships. Mm-hmm. And I don't really like to branch out. Mm-hmm. I, don't, okay. I'm, I'm, I don't like to have, a, I'm not like a tree with several branches. I'm like mm. a tree with maybe like two or three branches. So you like <laughs> build strong friendships. Yes. In general. Yeah. And I guess like that's a big difference between you and me because like growing up, so like I grew up, I, I don't want to paint it like I was out in the middle of nowhere. I yeah. was like probably a 10 minute walk away from the mall in in Chilliwack. Um, and but like I also didn't have many kids living around me 
Um, I did have one friend that lived down the street, and by friend I mean girl that she she stole a lot from me. <laughs> and <laughs> really, and like I always caught her telling lies. It was weird. It was a weird friendship. Yeah. But and then like I also had I don't know I had a. Well, your parents, like, cut a hole in your fence so people, they could just come over. Mine were very, like, strict about having the house nice and clean Hmm. for when people came over. So if I was to invite someone over, it would be, like, a big, like, I have to help clean the house from top to bottom. Ah. Um, So needless to say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. Like, other than my mom looking after friends' friends every once in a while and, like, me going over to be babysat with people or by people when I was really young, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have many friends coming over. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think I made, like, I made lots of friends in school, but they were never, like, super close friends. Right. So I had, I maybe had close friends with the people that my mom we're also friends with so anyways yeah and i guess like that's i'm kind of the type of person that like i can feel close to people and i don't need to constantly be close to them like i i'm the type of friend that unless you live near me and it's convenient i may not see you or talk to you that much but when i do see you it's just like oh my god let's pick up where we left off yes I don't know. I think that, that... I mean, I have a few relationships like that, too, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm definitely someone who has just, like, a select few mm-hmm. that I really do choose to just nurture mm-hmm. as much as I can. Yeah. Now, I'm just curious. I'm, you probably know all the the terms and all, the, mm-hmm. all this to, like, break it down. So, like, taking my story there... How would we define that? Like, what does that sound like to you in the... I don't think that's something that's really necessarily definable. Because, like, I think it's just... It shows your values of, like, building relationships. And not building many of them. Mm. Not building... Like, not casting a wide net. You're, like put effort into the small number of relationships that you have yeah yeah whereas i don't know i feel i guess maybe i'm changing in that way that i'm like maybe becoming more that way but i still like i think it's more that i struggle to continue building a lot of my other relationships in my life so Mm. but i mean yeah i don't think there's an actual term for it no okay and that's i think that's i think that's the wonderful thing that we need to I don't know get away from in psychology because you don't need a term for everything you can just be have nice explanations for individual differences absolutely right life is messy life mm-hmm. is random yeah and um yeah sometimes the cookie just crumbles that way yeah <laughs> and yeah and like I guess with childhood friendships it sounds like it was mostly the distance that made it hard for you guys to stay friends. Well, yes and no. Okay. Um, the relationship definitely changed. Yeah. I wouldn't really talk to him as often or see him as often. 
Well, I would experiment with like writing emails to him because mm-hmm. emails were kind of new to us yeah. at that time. <laughs> and I'd write, I, I bought this like letter writing kit and I'd like write letters to him. And yeah. um, then like every summer we'd go visit their family and they had this beautiful house just overlooking the Okanagan Lake and like nice. just right, right up right underneath gray monk wineries so like which is the the land from my uh my great-grandfather's orchard is used by gray monk oh my gosh so yeah the proximity is intense yeah Yeah. (laughs) um but yeah like we we would still see each other and like have contact every so often but yeah the relationship was definitely different and Mm -hmm. there is definitely like that need wasn't being fill, fulfilled mm-hmm. in uh, in that relationship anymore. So I yeah. definitely needed to like branch out mm. to something or to someone closer. Yeah, and uh, that's when I found Matt. Okay, and um, Matt and I became friends in around grade three. But mm. we've always kind of known each other since mm. like preschool. Okay, but it wasn't until like around grade three where our relationship kind of grew closer mm-hmm. and we started to really nurture and um develop that relationship a mm-hmm. bit more and yeah we spent more time as best friends than Garrett and I did sometimes I would try to nurture the relationship with Garrett by I finally would had my own money and I mm-hmm. could book my own trips so this is definitely mm-hmm. a lot older than childhood but yeah I would try to go see him maybe like once a month mm-hmm. take a bus all the way to Kelowna Mm-hmm. ask if you would meet me and it kind of stopped that whole tradition when there was one year where I decided or one month where I decided to book a ticket and I told him when I was arriving and he was like yay cool and then uh, I reminded him like okay I'm gonna be arriving this date at this time and then he said oh actually that's not good I can't meet you at all I don't and I'm like why and he's like I just don't want to and he wouldn't really tell me why I'm not really sure what was going on I'm sure there's something but no matter how hard I tried to pry or ask Mm -hmm. he just wouldn't tell me so that really made me feel like he took the carpet underneath my feet and he set me up with his friend that like I did know but and we were friendly but it still kind of felt like I was imposing yeah like you're coming to see him and then he's just refusing to see me and I that was from that moment on where I was just like something is definitely very different. Yeah. With our relationship. Yeah. Where it, when I compare that with my friend uh, Matt, we went through so much together. Mm-hmm. Almost felt like there was this unspoken contract that even though we have issues, we're going to try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. and we're there for each other mm. and we would actually have a very good open communication mm. even though we didn't realize it it was like one of those styles of open communication that was just so casual and free mm. and I think at the same time I have to give props to Matt because he's also that kind of spirit who is very good at setting boundaries and mm. he's like always just been so good at being like that's not okay okay wow and definitely one of those um people that was probably the most influential in my life mm. for showing me um the differences in the world and mm. how you know maybe i like i grew up catholic and i mm. grew up all this and like i was always shown that this is how you should see the world and then here's my best friend matt 
being like, no. <laughs> this is There's many ways to look at it. There's so many different yeah. ways to look at the world. And, um, yeah, I'm so grateful. I mean, it was painful sometimes mm. having him tell me off like this. Mm. But I just knew d- deep down in my heart that, like, even though it's painful, mm. it would be worse losing him. Yeah. Right? Now, you, you said that there was, like, open communication. Do you feel it was, like even though there were these times of tension, was it that, like, you were able to... You felt free to, like, say things that would necessarily, like... I don't know how do I I describe it. Like, not just be pleasantries between you two. Like, you could share an honest opinion that, like, maybe you guys didn't agree with, but you could still talk about it. Yes. Yes and no. And, like, I think it's interesting because, like, we grew up just kind of having this relationship mm-hmm. where I would say something that I personally wouldn't agree with now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be just quite like actually quite awful. Yeah. Something I would say <laughs> and um, something that I just honestly believed in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't feel, I wouldn't feel scared to tell him. Yeah. But then, yeah, he would respond with just this like, how dare you say that? That's actually really awful. Like <laughs> shut the F up. And I would feel just like, well, oh, okay. but like, and oftentimes I would feel like, why can't you see it from my perspective? Why can't we have a nice conversation about this? And uh, yeah, there was some moments of tension and there, there was some moments of being like, I feel like I can't say anything around you sometimes, mm. or I'm walking on eggshells around you sometimes. Mm. But I think stepping back now at the age I'm at, I would say that Matt just had this innate sense of identity Hmm. and this innate sense of justice. Okay. That was just kind of born with him. Yeah. You know, like he knew who he was. And I met him once and I get that from him. Right? Like, yeah, he's an interesting guy. Right? Yeah. Just like he, he knows who he is and brave enough to go challenge the status quo mm-hmm. and um you know there's parts of me that felt really scared for him sometimes because mm. these were things that were just like in my mind just so daring so mm. vulnerable so brave mm-hmm. to do and there's part of me that was like maybe you should tone that down a little bit. I care about your safety. Like, I don't want people talking about you behind your back. Mm. What I realized is that was me kind of blowing out his candle, blowing out his light. Yeah. And it wasn't really me protecting his light. And I think that's kind of normal in relationships where maybe I don't feel as secure in my own identity. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I, like, I kind of get that with, I look back at my parents, which, family relationships, big relationship that we have, and, like, I think for me, coming out with them, so I'm openly gay, Mm -hmm. I would consider myself, like, my identity is more queer than gay, because, I don't know, I don't think I really fit in with the gay community i more fit in with a queer community in general that's kind of how i view it and i like taking back that word i think taking back words are really great but um yeah like i i definitely when i came out to my parents 
that sort of like I need to protect you by silencing you was definitely like a big thing especially like mostly from my mom which my mom's an absolute saint she like she I asked her to keep the secret from my dad because my dad was quite homophobic and I didn't want to tell him while I was living in the their house because I was worried something bad would happen mainly mm. because like my dad and don't you dare bleep this because I think it's important to have but he once said that faggots don't deserve to live to me not yeah. knowing that I was gay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that was a big turning point in our relationship and like a big time when I realized that I didn't feel safe yeah um at that point um so but like my mom was really like well we have to keep this a secret from your father Mm. like she agreed with it at least but then when i wanted to go and like explore my either explore my sexuality or be a part of a queer community Mm -hmm. that was highly criticized by my mom oh um, just nice. because it was like, we're keeping this a secret from your father and I don't know what will happen. Turns out, plot twist, when I finally tell him in, when I'm in my first year of university, I send him a, a letter and he does a complete 180 and messages me right back by email and says, I failed to keep you safe as a parent, feeling safe as a parent. And like, wow, I am so sorry. and like that was that was pretty big and like we've made a lot of progress again (laughs) i disagree a lot with my dad's opinions but um we've made a lot of progress but yeah i can sort of see that like other people dimming your lights yes when like and you know what i think there was it was done out of love with my parents because like i did live in a place that had a lot of homophobia yeah but also I'm a pretty big dude people were terrified of me (laughs) and it was funny there was another Richard in my graduating class I was big smart Richard and he was gay Richard he did not come out until much later (laughs) which is hilarious so yeah oh wow gosh yeah anyways but yeah that's a a big story wow yeah (laughs) and i think there so there was one relationship that i wanted to talk about that also had to do with me coming out okay Um, so i had a friend in high school or actually we weren't even that close but like she just was somebody that i quickly became friends with in high school she was a friend of a friend and I finally, when I finally told her that I was gay, she was so excited to have a gay friend, which (laughs) I think that was like, that was actually like a really important thing for me because like it was really celebrated by that friend. (laughs) The problem was she was like, I have a gay friend now to everyone in the school. And meanwhile, we were hanging out like a lot. So it kind of outed me like completely to the whole school. Yeah. But I don't know. I think... I think, like, if anything, being outed by somebody that's celebrating (laughs) that they are friends with you, even though it's now looking back a little icky to have, like, ooh, I have a gay friend, now (laughs) you become the token, but I don't know. We were good friends for a while, and that was was a relationship that kind of faded because of 
these like blow-ups and walking on eggshells and mm. personally mm. i've never been good at navigating those i feel like eggshells yeah yeah and like i'm wondering like how did you navigate that with your friendship well yeah with matt I don't know. I think in in my heart of hearts, I just knew that if my life existed without him, mm. it wouldn't be as valuable. Okay. I think maybe in a sense, I got to give credit to my relationship with Garrett. Okay. To the reason why I really had this like feeling about a best friendship. Mm. Because, you know, Garrett and I were almost inseparable for the first like four or five years Mm-hmm. of our life like we spent almost every single day together and we just got each other mm-hmm. um, back when we were in, when we were kids and respectful of each other's imaginations and each other's likes and interests mm-hmm. and there was something that felt very safe mm. and very validated and very um, purposeful or meaningful yeah the unfortunate separation did happen mm-hmm people change people grow um things happen but in a sense when one door closes wow the cliche is going to come out but when one door closes another one opens and what opened up was a friendship with matt and Mm. i think in a sense i had that foundation Mm -hmm. that was lined up and almost this like understanding of what i know i want in a friendship Mm. and here's someone who can provide Mm-hmm. A lot of that. Yeah. Even though Matt and I are almost, like, very different yeah. in all of our interests. It's quite interesting. Like, mm. oftentimes growing up, we would say, like, we're two different people. Like, Matt I, was... I remember sitting with him, and we started talking about Pokemon, and then I found out that he wasn't into Pokemon. I'm like, yeah. how do you communicate with Luke? <laughs> but that's the thing, is, like... I think him and I were two souls that get each other mm, yeah. very deeply. Yeah. And we get each other um, in that way, just even though we have those differences. Like, he mm. was the... He was kind of emo growing yeah. up. Like, he was listening to all the, like, emo bands, punk rock bands, metal bands. Mm. Um, you know, loved black and the dark, gloomy colors. <laughs> And you're Mr. Sunshine. I'm Mr. Sunshine, right? Like, I was the the super happy friend cheering up the depressed guy. And I love how, like, I was the kid that dressed emo, but I was Mr. Sunshine as well. So I kind of had those both anyways. You know, it's interesting that you kind of say that, because it makes me think of maybe how he was the darkness and I I was the light. And that when we were together, I kind of reminded him of the light. And when he was with me, he reminded me of the darkness sometimes. Okay, so we are going to bring in some psychology theory here. Because like Let's what go. you have just talked about is like three of my ma- my like favorite topics. Let's go. Okay, so uh, <laughs> first of all, like the whole like you had a foundational friendship that really like informed. And like that just reminds me a lot of attachment. And like... I take so attachment theory created by Bowlby it's the idea that like we need to form close attachments and he really like he focused on parental attachments Mm. between child and parent and caregiver yeah because like really it's an evolutionary thing 
us as humans, we require to have that attachment relationship with our parents in order to survive. Because yes. uh, we aren't we aren't like sea turtles that like have mom, mama has like hundreds of them. One survives and yeah. passes down. No, that's not how how our species works. No. Um. So I yeah. So really attachment is like like that general sense of like what we call normative attachment where like we we get support and survival from our parents but mm -hmm. as we age like that attachment system's still there and like i think i think probably the best way to describe what the attachment system does as we get older at least the way i see it is it's a regulation an emotion regulation system mm. we have these like think of the strong relationships that you have in your life like the ones that you are able to share deep dark things with and yes. like that person usually is the type of person that allows you to regulate your emotions and like the way i see it there's this thing called the circle of security um, that is used a lot and it's the idea of like and it's it's usually with parents and children where there is a secure base and a safe haven so if secure base is like your oh man I actually always mix these up I'm probably gonna mix them up and if my supervisor ever hears this she's gonna bite my head off uh, but secure base um, is where you're about to go explore the world Okay. You can use that person, like knowing that that person's there for you. Yeah. You can go and explore the world. Yeah. And then when shit happens yeah. in your life, you can return to that friend as a safe haven. Uh, so it turns into a cycle of like, I can go explore the world, but I can always come back to this person. Yeah. And I think that's the function of our relationships as we like the close attachment relationships that we get older. And like, that's how I view how therapy works oh. like a big thing that we say is that 60 percent of therapy is the relationship that you have with your therapist it oh. doesn't matter if they're a good or bad therapist as far as technique goes like the majority comes from the relationship and i think that's mm. that circle of security they meet with me they create that attachment with me they feel that i give them the support to go out and explore the world yeah but they're able to come back to me. And it's artificial in some ways, in many ways, but it nonetheless is an attachment relationship. So I think that like that's a really important way of looking at relationships here. At least the fact that our relationships build upon each other. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Because your one your relationship with your parents kind of helps inform how you have relationships with your friends. Yeah. And then there's a cascading effect. Interesting. Yes. Thoughts on that so far? <laughs> well, you know what's interesting is the first thing that I thought of when you mentioned emotion regulation mm -hmm. is, you know, I, I was thinking about people with borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And it's probably developed, and this is my theory, you're here to correct me, <laughs> this is just my off-the-dome thought, but they probably grew up in environments where they didn't have that mm -hmm. was it safe haven is that what you called it the S safe haven secure base and actually like uh, so you we talked about this last time and yeah. you you really liked it the biosocial model of 
Uh, and so, like, just to explain a little bit, like, people with borderline personality disorder, one of the key symptoms is, like, unstable emotions. Yes. And, like, I, with the clients that I've worked with that have at least had those traits, they tend to not be able to describe their emotions. Mm. They just go, I go crazy. Mm. My emotions are big and overwhelming. Yeah. And that's all that they talk about. Right. Like, that's all, that's the level of it. And what we think of is the biosocial theory is there's two components so the first is biological okay. so this is the nature component so have you like i i kind of know you luke like would you say that you're the type of person to have like big emotions sometimes oh like, hell yeah. heck yes <laughs> big emotions are you easily set off no no okay wait yes and no i would say i have it depends con contextually speaking yeah sometimes i'm quite good yeah at regulating those emotions and if in let's say the context of certain topics or certain people i can have mm. my moments of just like Bleh. yeah <laughs> and then another component of this is like do your emotions last long term some do, yes. Okay. I would say, for me, my uh, ability to feel empathy can last for a really long time, mm. and it can now, actually be a little bit crippling. Now, empathy is not necessarily emotion, but are you meaning like you, you feel the other person's emotion a little bit? Yes, okay. yes. That that experience that you're talking about, yes, yeah. the, the the mirroring or the absorption mm. of the, uh, the emotion, I can... I can feel it for quite a long time sometimes. And mm. I think I was trying to read it. There's like the state and trait. Mm -hmm. A lot of psychologists are still trying to debate the difference between the two words. In relation to? Uh, like emotions. Like the difference oh, okay. between like experiencing anxiety versus having generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Um, where I think a state is where you experience it, but it's, it's not it's as... It's the motion of the ocean. Yeah, uh, yes? Yeah. Yeah, or it doesn't last too long, yeah. right? Whereas, like, um, trait, it, it, it lasts for a little too long, and you're kind of, like, stuck in that tunnel. Yeah, it's kind of like, uh, the way I see it is, like, state is, like, I'm constantly going, like, here. But, like, if my... Going up and down with your finger? Yeah, yeah, going up and down with my... Uh, this, is a, this is a wonderful audio uh, <laughs> medium, I guess. Okay. Um, so you're going up and down a little bit uh, but like you've got an average okay that's yes. going on like is that average what we consider average for the average person or is that average a little bit higher uh, or lower of course that's yeah. always a uh, possibility but true yes and like for me i'm personally like a very like i'm i'm kind of quick to go into my emotions but they usually stay not too extreme mm. and they don't last too long but okay. i definitely am like i'm a crier i cry in like with my clients a lot <laughs> even when they're not and it's like <laughs> it's like not necessarily something that i want to control because i think that's making me an authentic therapist but anyways so like there's that one the biological component is that just like our trait ability to regulate emotions yeah and then we have the social so that's bio social component mm. is um our environment and sometimes it's a we're put in an environment that doesn't necessarily allow us to experience those emotions so like we're told maybe that our emotions are too big 
we shouldn't be shouldn't be that that emotional and so the theory around this and i think it's been updated a bit recently but i just like explaining it this way because it's like a really nice explanation is if you get emotional and you have a parent that goes stop crying come on mm. geez why are you being such a crybaby yeah or what have you they may be well-meaning but what that's telling you is that your emotions aren't really valid 100 percent. yeah and so yeah. what happens is that usually does that usually make you feel better when somebody's like you shouldn't have these emotions no <laughs> it really doesn't no and... i think that's like a direct line to like pathologization i don't know if i said that right yeah but it's like you're abnormal you're like, sick anyways do you know what like saying like i think like it's okay to say you know wow your emotions are really big considering what's going on because that yeah. actually can sometimes put things into perspective i like to think of all emotions are understandable there's always that kernel of truth but they're not always justifiable Mm. so like i think and that's what i really worked with with the clients that i had that had this issue was like talking about like you know it's it's okay to have these emotions but let's see where it comes from and let's check the facts on it to see if it actually is worth it and like it's not that i want you to go oh i shouldn't have this emotion then what i want you to do is go oh i'm having this emotion because of this and I'm realizing that it's a bit bigger than I think it should be. Mm. And like, how am I going to help myself regulate throughout this? But what happens when like you're in an environment that's constantly saying that that's not right is like, and if you're an emotional person, you're going to up the ante probably. This yes. is probably not going to feel good. You're probably eventually going to start saying, I'm just broken. Oh. And it like kind of gets to the point where you start being more emotional. Either you're environment either helps you at that point and you learn "Ooh, i always have to up the ante mm. in order to do this or they react poorly and like try and break it down but does that help no and and that's how we see that both of these like the biological and the social aspect like really build upon each other and and get out of control wow yes i remember you telling me this and it just blew my mind yeah and this is kind of like how you defined insecurity, right? No. No, no. no. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> insecurity, there's... Uh, so when we talk about insecurity in the term of attachment, okay, um, that we kind of measure it now on an axis of two scales. So there's attachment anxiety, mm. which is like, I, I guess like the behavior-wise, it's like, are you worried that your partner is going to leave you? Are you worried that you are unlovable in some way and you mm. really need to and so what we see with people like it's we we call it a working model of the self saying that i'm unlovable therefore if i have a partner and i'm talking about this more in a romantic relationship because mm. that's where i'm mostly familiar with it but you sink your teeth your claws into your partner a bit more because yeah. you're worried about them leaving yes because you're worried about you not being able to secure a partner in the future mm. so gotta gotta protect your baby <laughs> and then so that you can either be high in that or low in that right then there is attachment avoidance which mm. is this idea of are other people trustworthy the working model of other mm. so can i have really emotional conversations about things that are important to me that are like revealing about myself can I have those with people without getting hurt? Yeah. 
And so if you go, no, I have to be an absolute closed book. I can't really, like, have big emotions with people. I, like, just have to keep everyone at an arm's reach. Yeah. That's high attachment avoidance. Mm. So if you're low on both of them, then you're what you, you call secure. And we all fall along a long continuum. It's not yes or no. But like when you get higher on both, we call that fearful attachment. And that's mm. that type of attachment is where you're more likely to um, give silent treatment. Ah. Walk Oof. out walk <laughs> out on people. Cause like Ugh. not only are you not only are you thinking that you're not worth it, you probably want to keep that relationship. So you may not actively be like, oh, you got to stay with me, you got to stay with me. But you're also worried about the other person, how trustworthy they are. So anyways, wow. that's insecurity. That's how we, we okay. conceptualize insecurity now. Oh, yeah. how is it? Yeah. Oh, shoot. <laughs> and I mean, like, that's just one theory around it. Like, I'm sure there's... There's other views, but this is the most prominent one in attachment. Oh. I wanted to get into that attachment bit, but do you mind if I share, like, my two other theories that I think are really important to what you said? I know yes. we're, like, we're gonna... I feel this needs to be a two-parter, <laughs> to be honest. All, every single podcast I've done is probably a two-parter okay, right now. Good. I, I saved, like, two hours good, <laughs> just so we could do this. Yeah. So it's fine. Keep going. Cool. Like, tell me more. So then you mentioned the idea that you guys were so opposite and you were brought into each other, like his lifestyle and things that you weren't necessarily into, you experienced them through him. Yes. And so this is the idea of self-expansion. Mm-hmm. And this is another big thing. Again, this is coming more from the relationship research, but I can see it really applying to friends and stuff like that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of the research around attraction and stuff has been like we are more attracted to people that are are similar to us in many ways because we know that that's a done deal if there's somebody really similar to you and you're interested in them we're more likely to be attracted because we're just like they're just like me it's gonna be easy but the one thing that's gonna get in the way of this is well not necessarily in the way of this we want something interesting yes and we want to learn something new. We want to get new resources from our partners. Uh, so this is the idea of self-expansion. Okay. The people that we have and, and relationships that we have in our life allows us to expand our sense of self. Yeah. So I, I really found this in my first... God, I'm going to say my first real relationship, but the hilarious thing is he, at the end of our relationship, he was like, no, we aren't dating. Oh. <laughs> so that was, that was, ooh. but, um, oh, geez. Uh, he's my Matt. I feel everyone has a Matt, <laughs> whether, I'm, whether good or bad. <laughs> I've got a cousin Matt. Okay. Guy. Yeah. But my Matt, he, uh, I really was attracted to him because we were so different. Mm. Like I'm Mr. Sunshine he was moody and assertive Mm. and I was agreeable and happy. He really was interested in the arts and stuff like that. And I like was interested, but I didn't really know about it. He loved going to coffee shops to work. And I 
kind of did that before but never saw it as like an actual activity so like a lot of the things that we did together have actually become part of my personality interesting the way that we interact with our partners or friends we get what they have in a way and yeah. so their self becomes integrated with our self in some way yeah yeah i would definitely say like my love of green day yeah came from that i think also just like my love of being weird okay <laughs> that was something that we shared together was like we love just being weird okay. with each other and we were definitely those millennials that were like, ooh, so random. Let's be oh, random God. together. Oh, no. Yes, I know. Cringy. However, <laughs> I think we just kind of really love just like, yeah, just being weird with each other, being silly with each other. I picked up on a lot of the uh, goofiness that he would do. And then um, I think vice versa. Lots of inside jokes as well that mm. I think have just kind of like woven themselves into our psyches. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like, I mean, the one thing with self-expansion is eventually as you like stop learning novel things from like either your relate your partner or your friendship, it's going to lose that self-expansion. So like, have you ever had with like a brand new friend doing a bunch of new stuff with them yeah. and you're really excited to be their friend and then all of a sudden you stop doing new things together and it's kind of like, hmm. Oh yes. Not feeling as as interesting. That's when self expansion starts to peter out. Mm. Um, so, one of the things that we give advice for couples is keep doing new stuff together, learn things together. Like doing a class together on something. That's uh. like that's actually the thing that's going to make a relationship. Like if everything else is cool in the relationship, but it's getting boring, and you're worried about that doing like learning something new together is like a perfect way to spice up the relationship interesting yeah huh so you need you always need to be expanding yourself yeah. whether it's with your partner or without your partner but yeah i feel like it's a weird repeated pattern that sometimes happens in my friendships but like mm. you know i have a strong friendship and then they move away Mm -hmm. and I have another strong friendship that filled it and then they move away mm -hmm. um, yeah I think since then I've had a lot of other really strong friendships you know I had a very strong relationship with my cousins mm -hmm. I had another friendship for a while that was very much what you're talking about like where things were new he was a different friend mm -hmm. where we tried a lot of new things together and then it just kind of like petered out mm -hmm. But weirdly enough, a lot of the relationships after Matt moving away to Montreal was they kind of just ended in like a violent, not really violent. <laughs> Let me choose a different word. It just kind of felt emotionally violent. It was just kind of messy. It always kind of ended. Messy. Yeah. Not really ended. I wouldn't say all of them ended, but yeah. The uh, the shift in the dynamic of the relationship was just messy. Got toxic. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, yeah, friendships end in those two ways. They either, well, I think three ways. You either drift apart, but you're able to, like, just rekindle every once in a while, and that's still a good relationship. Yeah. Or you move apart and just, like, kind of never see each other again. Or it's, like, one of those, oh, my God, that was some drama yes. <laughs> ending the, the friendship. And thank God I haven't had many of those in my life. But mm. then again, I don't know if any of 
the ones that have felt like they have been slowly disappearing, whether that for me was actually maybe trauma on their end. I guess you never know because it it may not be something that's shared with you. Yeah. But yeah, I, so about friendships and relationships ending, I guess, how do you feel about those ones that have kind of ended? Yeah, it's interesting because, like, I've never had a romantic relationship in my life, and there's a part of me that feels abnormal by it, but I don't Mm -hmm. think that comes from me. I think it comes from the outside world telling me that it's abnormal. Mm -hmm. But when I listen to songs about heartbreak, Mm -hmm. I relate, Mm -hmm. even though it it's not romantic that I'm relating to. It's Mm -hmm. more like platonic friendship that I'm relating to. Cause like, yeah, I know, I know what heartbreak feels like. It, it is heartbreaking. Yeah. And it is devastating and there is grief and there is mourning and you know, the whole cycle and mess of grief. But when I think about it now, as time has passed and the dust has settled and the story is made more clear, Hmm. through counseling therapy and inner work i look on it with like a bittersweet gratitude Mm. you know right because it's just like yeah that sucked yeah that really did suck you know there's one friend in particular where i think like yeah that ended in a really shitty way yeah but then i think about how i was holding on to parts of myself secrets about myself for such a long time and because he was this new friend, I was like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And I just told him. Mm-hmm. And it, like, blew open my heart and blew open my psyche when mm-hmm. I did. And I was like, I wasn't ready for that, but I did it. <laughs> and there was a closeness because of it. Mm-hmm. And there was, I think, a resilience that started getting built up. Mm-hmm. I was talking about this with um, my cousin Sarah, actually, Um, I kind of liked how we were describing resilience. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a booster shot sometimes. Like, Mm -hmm. to to properly build resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of times, um, society uses the word resilience as, like, you need to be resilient. Like, it's like a shield. Mm -hmm. You just put up your armor, and that's your resilience. Mm -hmm. But in truth, resilience is actually the opposite. Mm -hmm. Right? You gotta take down the shield and feel it. You're taking the punches. Right? And you gotta take the punches, Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like... Every time you take a punch and you feel it and you let yourself experience it, you're building up the immunity and the skill set to properly go through it the next time, if that makes any sense. No, completely, because it it sounds like you just become more mindful rather than being unbelievably guarded and pretending like it isn't happening. Yes. You are more taking it in and realizing it for what it is. Yeah. And like, actually, like it's kind of... So I do a lot of mindfulness work with people and like, actually, I guess this isn't really related to, well, it it kind of is. So for anxiety treatment, one thing that we do is we do this thing called, actually with any emotion, you can do opposite action. I like doing it for anxiety. It's really easy to explain. The idea is like, you have to do the thing that you're really scared of Mm. um, (laughs) in anxiety treatment. The reason why I like framing it as an opposite action is like we tell people to do opposite action all the way 
So if I have a client that's afraid to go, like has social anxiety and doesn't want to go to a party, I could say, go to the party. And what they could do is they could go to the party and they could go play with a cat in the corner. Yeah. What the fuck did they learn? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you can bleep that one. No, what the no. fuck did they learn from... There's uh, no bleeps. There's no bleeps. Okay. Oh, no. Um, what can they learn from being in that party if they just go play with a cat? And so the idea here is to just be, like, very mindful and present and, like, actually fully opposite act all the way. Mm. Talk to people. Notice what happens when you are interacting with people. Notice their facial expressions. If somebody's anxious, they're more likely to interpret neutral things as negative. Oh. But even that is great because you can be like, oh, you thought that they looked like they just like really didn't like you? Well, what happened? <laughs> oh, is it, so no one died. Okay, that's great. And then you kind of build off of that, which is wonderful. <laughs> but yeah, so like... The idea of like being resilient is being mindful yeah. of your experience. And I think that's, yeah, that's really powerful. Wow. What was interesting is, you know, it's kind of tying me back to what you're talking about when, you know, your, your first foundational relationship is your parents. Mm -hmm. And when you grow up in an environment where they see your big emotions and then deny the existence, not the existence, but like, tell you that you shouldn't be feeling like that mm -hmm. right yeah that's kind of the shield of resistance oh of yeah, resilience. yeah it kind of just starts at your parents doesn't it well notice how i said the clients that have trouble with this can't describe their emotions yes that's the shield that's the let's just paint it all one color and not understand where it's coming from because it's obviously bad yeah and so a big like the big step that you do with clients and like and i'm talking specifically about dbt like i think the thing that is the powerful medicine with that is you allow them to be mindful of their emotions mm. mindful of what it looks like mindful of where it comes from yeah and then as soon so we do a thing called chaining with, chaining with and we have them do a diary card every single week where they like rate their emotions every single day it's a very tough therapy like Oof, yeah dbt is like you are going in the you are doing two uh, an hour with your therapist you're doing two hours a week of group treatment you are doing homework from both your therapist and your group like you are going all in and part of the homework from the therapist is doing this diary card what we do is we go look and we're like, oh, where where were the emotions big this week? Or where were they small? And like, let's, let's see what was happening there. And we do what's called a chain. And we understand, okay, either this big emotion happened and usually the emotion's leading to some sort of negative or some sort of target behavior. Mm -hmm. So whether that be self-harm, whether that be drinking, whether that be doing drugs, there's tons of different examples. Yeah. But we go, okay, you did your target behavior what was going on let's go backwards let's like create a complete story of how you got to the target behavior wow and as we do that we kind of see like ooh, so you didn't sleep last night and then you got up and then you had a fight with your partner then you went to work and then but 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 you see like everything you felt this in your body 
you were feeling sad and angry well where where was that coming from oh it sounds like the next thing was shame that came up afterwards or something like that and so this is what an average therapy session is is digging into a single event going in and finding the structure of what led to that and then when we have that beautiful structure we go in and go okay here's at this point something you could have done Ah. that would have changed the trajectory and that's how we do it and i remember it was one of my last sessions with one of my clients and i sat down and i was like oh i noticed this thing on your diary and they went through the whole chain by themselves unprompted and then they were like and these are the things i'm changing in order to do it and i was like you just did that by yourself wow and they were like yeah i know how to manage my emotions now (laughs) so like it's like again it's that mindfulness of the actual emotion can be really helpful yeah and so when you say mindfulness specifically it's could it be like just more so just naming kind of the the emotion or trying to at least name one emotion sometimes i remember going to like one of my first counseling appointments back when i was like 15 or something yeah and so the counselor is like, so how are you feeling today? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, well, what do you mean? And then I can try to describe like, I don't know, there's this scene in The Simpsons where like Mr. Burns apparently has every disease ever. And the doctor tries to describe it by like using these little finger trolls. Yeah. And then like this little toy doorway. And he tries to shove all of them through the doorway. Yeah. And none of them fit through the doorway. And I'm like, that's kind of where I'm at. The emotions. Okay. Yes. Okay. And they're like, oh, okay. So then what they started doing is like, I guess, chaining. Yeah. In a sense, that's what they were doing is they're trying to like, so like, take me through the day. Yeah. And then I would describe an event and then they're like, so could it be perchance that you felt this emotion at this yeah. point? And then that was like, that's one goblin out of the doorway. Yeah. And then it's like, could it be possible that you felt this emotion during this event that's another goblin out of the doorway right and so now finally i have this like inventory of all these emotions that i felt in one day which was a lot a lot and right yeah and that's what we try and like highlight is that like it's not a simple thing like if you were able to like if it was easy and emotions and some people are like this where it's just like i'm happy i'm sad like this it's one or the other and it's fine but (laughs) A lot of people are not like that and it's caught like emotions are so complicated and like so we're actually getting into our original topic that i was gonna like i had suggested is of emotions but like i i really love the idea of primary and secondary emotions because like that usually is a good way of looking at it and so primary emotions is the thing that you feel right away yeah primary emotions generally they are the softer emotions though i fight some psychologists that say that like anger is not usually a primary emotion because i get angry about that because because <laughs> <laughs> that's my primary emotion um but like your primary emotion is usually the one that's solvable the one that's fixable mm. and the one that like you should actually be paying attention to yeah generally the secondary emotion that comes up afterwards is usually trying to save you from that primary emotion and what do you mean by that? So, for example... I think I know what you mean by yeah. that, but like, yeah. So, for example, somebody, let's say, romantic relationship, your partner says something that's really 
really hurts you. Mm. You feel that hurt right away. Mm. But maybe you don't actually express that hurt. Maybe you jump right to yelling at them. Oh, yes. Because, like, that is, like, <laughs> you are on the defensive. And, like, you know... Is it, is it really... Is it hot in here? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, that could be... You could be jumping to your secondary emotion, which the secondary emotion is not going to fix that hurt. It's just going to create more distance between you and that other person. Right. It's going to help you by not feeling hurt, because being hurt is to be vulnerable. <laughs> so like you yeah. you really like sometimes you really just sometimes you don't even feel that hurt you just jump to that anger and that's yes. that's why like that's why sometimes secondary emotions everyone's saying it's always anger sometimes it's not somebody sometimes somebody just pisses you off and you get angry first and yes. I, so i think that's i think that's legitimate to say that it can't be a primary but often it is a secondary hmm. so the thing is, like, usually the primary emotion is the one that you actually should be focusing on and, mm. and working with. The secondary one usually either leads you to do crappy things sometimes. Mm. So sometimes that can be rumination about things. So if you go from being hurt to feeling hopeless... Ooh. <laughs> that like That's another primary. You can be hurt by something... Or, or feel sad about something yeah. and sad like sadness i guess like when you feel sad like actually feel sad not the hopeless part what is your instinct to do when you're sad yeah when i'm sad i know physically my shoulders roll forward my head falls down nice to describe yes <laughs> yeah the the emotion is quite like prominent Hmm. in my psyche it's like the first it's the only thing i can really think about and it's hard for me to deviate sometimes now like i'm I'm wondering what is like the urge that you have when you feel sad well i think something that's interesting about me and i can relate to when you said you were a crier mm-hmm. i was always a crier yeah growing up as well i think for me i had this innate sense of let me feel Mm. If that makes any sense. And mm. when I, I was, I did grow up with like my parents telling me, stop crying. Mm. Don't be angry. Stop this. Stop, stop, stop with mm-hmm. my emotions. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all the time. Mm-hmm. But when it came to sadness, mm. there's nothing that they could do yeah. to stop me from being sad. And I think in a sense, it created this resilience in me about mm-hmm. sadness where I'm able to sit with my sadness in a very healthy way mm. and yeah. some of my best days like yeah. the most joyful days have some deep sorrow in them as well oh yeah right like I will and watch that... like a tv show that will literally make me sob and make me sit with mm-hmm. the fact that life is just a piece of shit sometimes mm-hmm. and then I'll go out and I'll go connect with some people that will make me smile <laughs> this is this is what I was trying to lead to but like yeah. yeah you when you feel sad do you you want that connection don't you oh 100% yeah. yes and like i i tend to like flip the lights off in my room yeah i sit here in this chair mm-hmm. and i'll listen to sad music and I think in a sense, like, I'm definitely a melancholy kind of guy. Okay. Which is interesting, because, like, I was always describing myself even earlier in this conversation as the happy-go-lucky guy, but I think the reason why I was so genuinely 
happy-go-lucky mm-hmm. is because at the other end of the spectrum, I just really allowed myself to be sad. Okay, yeah. I like how you're describing it as, like, sadness can be just sadness by itself. And, mm-hmm. like, I think, like, sadness's ugly brother is hopelessness. Oof. And that, like... And I'm sure, like, what you described to me does not sound like hopelessness. It sounds like you cry your eyes out, but then you're able to, like, you're like, I need to be picked up by somebody else in my life, so I need to go out and see them. I mean, I've had moments of hopelessness, too, though. Like, I've gotten stuck in hopelessness, but that's usually tied to self-worthiness. Okay, yeah. So so maybe some shame mixed in with there. 100%, yeah. But when you're feeling that hopelessness, what is, what's the urge? to fix myself Mm. interestingly enough like i am desperate for a solution Mm. okay when i'm feeling hopeless and i can't figure out any solution so it sounds to me like there's rumination in that right rumination um lack of self-compassion yeah um yeah, it really makes me think of this work that I'm doing um, with the the archetypes that's mm-hmm. inspired by Carl Jung. Mm-hmm. Um, the book that I'm reading is called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but when I was doing the, the work on the warrior, mm-hmm. I recognized that there was a crap ton of shame. Yeah. Um, when doing the work with the, the coach that I was doing it with, mm-hmm. I had to show up to every session without a shirt on oh jesus okay right? and i was like no oh, oh, why and he like the thing is my coach made me feel very safe <laughs> things that you could not do with your psychologist <laughs> no no absolutely and i think i think there's some beauty in like you know search, shop around for what works for you yeah, as well fair, right fair, yeah. and like maybe have a whole bunch yeah, of different options for your your self-care true. right um but what was really interesting is like he made me feel safe yeah but i didn't feel safe in my own skin yeah which was very interesting and then discovering um discovering the shadows of the warrior so um at the top of the triangle of the warrior is the healthy warrior who's the one who protects your inner kingdom um and then uh off to the left side of the triangle you have the active shadow who is known as the sadist Mm -hmm. in this uh type of language Mm -hmm. and he's the one who is uh would protect the kingdom but like would do so without caring about how much harm he does to others lashing out lashing out yeah um and then on the other side is the passive shadow which is the masochist Mm -hmm. so now i was allowed to do a lot of creativity Mm -hmm. with it and i just started to imagine this masochist in my (laughs) in my psyche and it turns out she's a woman Mm-hmm. Because I have a lot of similarities to how females typically would mm-hmm. hate themselves mm-hmm. in a way too. I have a, like a similar shame response. Mm-hmm. She was amorphous and like scary and goblin-like, <laughs> and she almost looked like a Titan from Attack on Titan. <laughs> okay, but she had these fingers that would like stretch into strings, and she would uh weave them into the other shadows of my other psyches mm. and she would use them to do her bidding essentially mm. so um my masochist would um use my magician shadow 
mm-hmm. as um, a way to self-harm mentally. My, both of my lover shadows, like, there's, I think there's a huge reason why I don't have romantic relationships. Mm. It's because it all kind of boils down to this masochist shadow mm. where deep down it's kind of like, I kind of hate myself sometimes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah, there is a lot of shame. What were we talking about? We, we, we were talking about, like, <laughs> secondary emotions. And, like, I like I, I think that's a beautiful description of a lot of what Young was talking about. Probably has to do with, like, our secondary emotion responses. Mm-hmm. Like, especially the shadows. But, like, when we're talking about hopelessness, most people, when they're hopeless, tend to, like, withdraw. Yes. Um, and that's, like, the natural tendency. For um, shame, it's kind of similar in the way that, like you want to hide a certain aspect of yourself from mm. the shameful aspect of yourself from others. This is why the masochist came up. Because yeah. those are all aspects of like hundred yeah. percent secretly kinda of hating yourself. Yeah. What I really love about this type of work though, mm-hmm. um, is that it kind of creates this language to help separate you from mm, yeah. my emotional experience or my problems. Yeah. It's a very um flowery and creative and almost kind of like this medieval kind of language, but, like, I will take it, and I'm going to run with it. Well, like, I think one of the key things in ACT therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, is Mm -hmm. that externalization Mm -hmm. of these things. Like, you are not... You're not necessarily... And I guess I'm going to be doing... I'm doing OCD treatment a lot now, and one Mm -hmm. of the things I'm learning about is, like, you want to externalize those thoughts Mm -hmm. that you're having. Because, Mm -hmm. like, if we look at... Like, there's this idea of moral scrupulosity, OCD. It's, like, the feeling that you have to be perfect to other people and you have to, like, do the right thing constantly. And so those... In that OCD, sometimes it can be, like, even if I think something that's unsavory, they, like, that makes them a bad person. Oof. And so... (laughs) Do I have some of that? Maybe. (laughs) I Honestly, I was listening to the podcast and I was thinking, is this... No. I I think, like, I think everyone has a different level of this. But, like, a big part of the treatment for that is, like, and from what I understand, I'm just starting in this treatment. DBT, I think I'm, like, pretty good at, but I'm just starting to learn this. But a part of it is externalizing those thoughts and, like, Mm -hmm. being, like, these are just thoughts. Yes. You don't have to... It doesn't have to be a part of me. Yes. yes. So, yeah. and like the best way to put that idea that you just said—that these are just thoughts into mm. action—is mm. your language, the words that you say. Yeah. Right. I, I think that that's pretty. Like this past few years, that's been the most mind-blowing thing. Yeah. Is like taking inventory of the language of the words mm. that you're saying out loud into yourself. Yeah. And how they affect your psychology i just double checking like is this like going from this is this way to oh i'm worried or i had a thought that this is this way yes yeah right like we're just like breaking down the linguistics of Mm -hmm. your internal monologue or external monologue yeah right like for the the archetypal work that i'm doing what's really lovely about having this language Mm -hmm. is that I can talk about my problems as if they are anthropomorphic Mm -hmm. versions of themselves that are completely different entities. Yeah. And like linguistically speaking, my masochistic shadow Mm -hmm. really loves to convince me that I hate myself. Yeah. 
right? As opposed to me saying, I hate myself, mm. right? Break down those linguistics. Yeah. This is I'm, causing me to do this. I'm like literally driving a wedge between me and my problems. Mm-hmm. And I am recognizing that I can hold on to many problems, but that doesn't have to define me. Mm. Yeah. Right? And yeah. I think almost like shame dissolving techniques mm-hmm. in this uh, work right now, if that makes any sense. Like shame linguistically is like saying that I am insert Mm-hmm. identity here yeah right i am bad i am unlovable i am whatever mm-hmm. right and that's essentially saying that i am a hundred percent of me is mm. this thing mm-hmm. whereas if you were to use your words to create some separation you're then saying that you're just experiencing this as mm. opposed to being it yeah Right, And I think that that brings up a key component of what we teach in mindfulness is to be non-judgmental. Mm. It sounds like when, when I first introduce it to clients, they're like, well, I'm just judgmental. Like there's like, that's how it's going to be. It actually, the best way to prevent yourself from being non-judgmental is to realize, or like, think of what you had just said, like your self-talk that you're giving to yourself, and ask yourself if there's a more accurate way that you can describe it. Mm. So this can go from, I am unlovable, to I think I'm unlovable, to there are aspects of my body that I don't like, which makes me think I'm unlovable, Oof. to I've been told throughout my life that this aspect of my body is not right then I internalize that. You can actually just like, as you describe something, as you describe something and make it clearer, that rips away a lot of that judgment. Wow. That's in on that. I say like, when in doubt, describe it out. <laughs> it's like, like one that. thing that I tell, I, I use a lot. And like, I think the one thing that you got to watch out for is that leading just to rumination, which I think is like, that's, the big thing that usually comes with a secondary emotion. Mm. So what is rumination, rumination, to be more specific? Yeah, so, okay, it comes from this idea of, you know, cows are ruminators. They eat grass, they chew it up, it goes to their one stomach, then they vomit it out, Yuck. and then they chew it, and it goes into another stomach, and then they digest it. Oh, okay. That's what you're doing with your, usually thoughts. It's more of a thought-focused thing. Okay. And I think this, when you were talking about, like, trying to fix something, uh, that sounds like rumination to me, because, like, it's, like, I'm, I do this too. I, like, go from just mm-hmm. trying to think that there is a solution to an emotion. Uh, and there very rarely are, like, solutions to emotions. We just have to experience them, and we can create other things, but, like, the why, 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 yes. that is, like, that leads to rumination, and it's yeah. also not accepting reality a lot of times which yeah yeah. it really makes me feel like rumination and foreboding joy are almost almost the same thing describe foreboding joy for me again foreboding joy is like you know life's going well relationships going well Mm. school's going well fuck when's the bomb gonna go off right and uh i think that moment you say, you know, fuck, when's the bomb going to go off? When's yeah. the shoe going to drop? Um, is almost like the the spark mm. of 
what could be anxiety, mm-hmm. rumination, yeah, um, dread. Yeah, I don't. I don't think rumination is always that, but it definitely like you are ruminating when you get into that point. Yes, and, like, yeah, you're trying to solve an unanswerable thing. Yes, what I would say, an attachment to the way things currently are. I'm not saying the attachment in the sense of what I talked about earlier. Mm. That attachment is more of a like buddhist idea of attachment where you're holding on to things right that's when you're like oh my god what if this wonderful thing ends and like (laughs) that gets in the way of you enjoying the thing in the moment oh like and so like we gotta we gotta let go and allow (laughs) things to be as they are in the moment and if you do lose that thing that's very sad and like you gotta accept that like you are losing something that's really important but yes no it that really reminds me of going to go see my friend garrett Mm -hmm. for like the first time in Kelowna. yeah when he moved away and being so excited yeah you know that trip that four hour drive all the way to Kelowna was just like oh my god yes we get to go see him Mm -hmm. we're gonna go do this we're gonna do that we're gonna do this and that and that and this and this and that and then we're finally there and it's just like we're having so much fun and it was just a weekend yeah maybe like three days yeah right and we're like having so much fun on friday all this excitement and then saturday is just like you know that's like acceptance of like okay this is what it's like what are we going to do now yeah and it's not really as extravagant Mm -hmm. as my mind played it out to be and then the last day hits Mm -hmm. and i can't help but cry uncontrollably mm-hmm. and I, I like I don't want to accept the fact that like we're leaving and that this all of this is done and there's like this disappointment yeah right that's devastating but like you can feel that but also like did crying and like really focusing on it being you losing it you lost a day yeah I did it, lose a day the the value of goodbyes are hard sometimes yeah and that just because you do have to say goodbye doesn't mean you should have to ruin the last day. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think it's really important to recognize and reaffirm and solidify to all mm-hmm. of your relationships, to like your whole life essentially, that goodbyes are going to happen mm-hmm. and that they are so hard. Yeah. And to build up that resistance, to ruminate about holding on, yeah, is only making it worse. Yeah. Right? And I think, like, this brings up a really good point of, like, the happiness that you can experience from going and seeing a friend that you miss to the goodbyes. Like, a lot of people really struggle with something like that. Oh, obviously going and going to visit him is a bad thing because I felt sad at the end. But that's not the full story and this is where like so dbt is dialectical behavior therapy Mm -hmm. and a dialectic is the idea it's a philosophy that two things can be right at one time oh no yeah so like (laughs) what like two opposite two things that can be opposites like they both can coexist with each other so like a lot of people have a hard time seeing that and like navigating that because like it is tough like they're they're conundrums how can i feel like so happy seeing my friend and then feeling so horrible leaving them 
Wait, so what you're saying is that when I agree to go see my friend, yeah, there is a contract that I'm unknowingly signing that is going to be both amazing and like really, really depressing yeah. at the exact same time. I think, I don't think like that's necessarily a contract. I think it's like a lot of what we do in life has these dialectics and we have to look at the dialectical tension. Is there something to figure out? Not really, but just respecting the fact that two things can be true at once that you, seem opposite. Do you think the resistance is vulnerability, right? And what do you mean in that sense? Like accepting the fact that maybe the other side could also be true is now cracking open your defenses about what you thought was true i think so i think like it also is just hard to stomach that there's a lot of middle paths in our life like and like that dbt is deeply rooted in buddhist tradition like that's actually where a lot of it's stole it's stolen from everything in dbt is stolen as marcia would say she's by the way she's a hilarious woman and it's very i've heard that her health has really taken a turn and she's very far into dementia oh jeez, um, which is very sad but sassy sassy bitch <laughs> Like, just the stories I hear are just, like, kind of terrifying at some points. And But she said she stole everything from that therapy. And a lot of it's stolen from Buddhist tradition. Hey, and, like, that's this dialectical tradition of, like, two things being true at once. Watch out for these dialectics. Because, like, I think that's a really important thing to notice. Because when we try and force something to not be dialectical, when it is ultimately dialectical like can run into problems if you had just and it sounds like you kind of went to the full camp of this sucks because i have to leave my friend yeah i was like in hysterics yeah like i couldn't actually like hold on to a steady breathing pattern yeah it but, was like that classic like <gasps> and do you blame me like you're a kid with poor emotion right kids are really bad at their emotions let's fit there let's state the facts there i think now you're probably the type to be able to see that dialectic maybe a bit more like i'm really sad but i really want to enjoy this time together i'm actually i'm seeing one of my friends tomorrow that's gone away on internship and i am just so excited to see her um but it's going to be really sad for me to like see her and then say goodbye again again dialectic tensions that we have to we have to kind of consolidate. Wow. But yeah, watch out for those. Like that's, I think that's one really important thing is like, again, this gets into like the idea of black and white thinking. We get stuck in those patterns, but it's usually some sort of shade of gray. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I'm just like, I'm having a creative thought. Work with me. Um, but, you know, just today I was exposed to um youtube the shorts mm-hmm. it's like tiktok but on youtube yeah um and for some reason youtube thinks that it's going to be okay to show me these tiktoks mm-hmm. that are trying to argue against the idea of non-binary gender okay and it gets really painful for me to watch that sometimes mm-hmm. but it's almost like gender could be like a dialectic construct correct yep, me yep. no like, no i can see you know like nature doesn't work in binaries mm-hmm. usually yeah there's rarely i don't i can't even actually think of a time where nature actually works in binaries mm-hmm. 
maybe the light is on, the light is off. Well, like, no, well, <laughs> I don't know. If we're thinking like sunsets, like there's different levels of light, yeah. Exactly, yeah. right? And like gender is another construct mm-hmm. that is not binary. Yeah, we get to false dichotomies of right? things. Like, my masochistic shadow is a female. Mm hmm. Right? Like, that's a part of me that I can recognize that I have some femininity yeah. in. Yeah. Right? Okay, this is going to, like, kind of really open up the conversation, but this is why I think, like... So Myers-Briggs is based off of um, Young's work. Oh, yes. Um, and I think what you're seeing probably is, like, there's a lot of complexity to Young's work. And, like, oh, yes. And, like, it's not that you are... I am a... I'm a masochistic knight. Like, it's like, there's no, like, there's no, like, I am this. There are different, just different parts to you. Oh, yes. And so, like, I think, like, Myers-Briggs is really trying to force a dichotomy on those ideas. Mm -hmm. When, in reality, it's, there's many different levels of it. I mean, there's generosity in the whole Myers-Briggs test. But I think you need to take it with a grain of salt and maybe... Just put it into the spectrum of who you are. Yeah. Right? It's don't, not, don't let it be your personality don't, type. Don't let it just be your personality type. It can just be like, hey, I took the test and this is what I scored. Do you know how many times I've taken it and it's come out different? Oh, really? I've only oh, taken yeah. it once. Oh, yeah. I like every single time. I don't remember it because, yeah, to be honest, not, not the best validity as somebody who, who does psychological testing and stuff like that. It's not great. But okay, that's good to know. I think like I think it's good like just to get the conversation going in your head. Again, like these are like different ways that you're exploring yourself and mm-hmm. you're learning to describe yourself more. Um, which again, like it's kind of like I don't know if you're just leaving it at the Myers Briggs level, that's probably not going to be really helpful because that's not really expanding and describing your yeah. yourself. But I, I think like it can be a tool to help you start to describe yourself a bit more. Mm, interesting. Alrighty there. Well, there's the first part of that conversation. It's a, it's a long one. Yeah, I think the next part will be a bit shorter. In the next part, however, I do talk about boundaries with Richard, and it is um, a very, very good conversation. And um, I do get a little bit personal in that conversation. Um, I do talk about a conflict that I had, um, but without giving away too much, uh, the conflict is resolved and everything is okay now. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in the next episode. But yeah, um, I hope there is something that you could take away from this conversation. I know that there's a lot that I can take away from this conversation. And um, yeah, I just wanted to extend a big thanks to Richard for being on the podcast and I'd love to have you back on again one day but uh, yeah I will see you in the next episode bye Dear Brambling Podcast is a podcast dedicated to my little nephew, to the next generation of humans growing up in this world, as well as to those who might be looking for a little more guidance in their life. It is hosted by me, Luke Benoit. The editing and sound design are provided by MB Productions, as well as Hideout Productions. 
The music that you're listening to is called Sunlight Cascading Through the Clouds by Artificial Music. If you'd like to follow me on any social media, I am on Instagram and Twitch at Rex. And for those who are still listening this far into the podcast, I'd like to take a moment to really thank you from the bottom of my heart. I'd also like to say that if you are experiencing any difficulties or pain in your life right now, there is still no substitute for a trained coach, counselor, or licensed therapist. If you are committed to putting in the work and really trying to better yourself as a human, I definitely recommend that you go searching and shopping for the right coach, counselor, or therapist for you.